Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction, and today we're going to look at three stories that demonstrate that. But before we get into those stories, if you're a fan of the strange, dark, and mysterious delivered in story format, then you come to the right channel because that's all we do and we upload three or four times every week. So if that's of interest to you, the next time you arrive at a four-way intersection at the same time as the like button, politely allow them to go, and then as soon as they do, immediately T-bone them. Also, please subscribe to our channel and turn on all notifications so you don't miss any of our weekly uploads. All right, let's get into today's stories. In 2013, 46-year-old Paul Baxter started feeling sick. And then he developed a wicked cough that got so bad over a couple of days that he could barely speak because he was just coughing the entire time. And so he went to his doctor who quickly diagnosed him with pneumonia and put him on a treatment plan. But after several months of being on this plan and not having his condition improve at all, his doctor referred him to a respiratory clinic. There, they did an x-ray of his chest and they discovered a suspicious shadow in the lower right section of his lung. Doctors were concerned, especially given the fact that Paul was a long-term smoker, but before before they just put him under the knife and started cutting this out of his lung, they decided they would take a probe with a camera on the end of it and run it down into his lungs and actually have a look around inside. During the procedure, which Paul was awake for, the doctor put the probe down into that shadow area in his lung and right away he saw this lump. But when he zoomed in with his camera on the lump itself, he saw there was something orange sticking out of it. And so he told Paul there were little pincers at the end of this probe and he was going to try to move the tissue around to try to see what this thing was and if it was a foreign object, he would try to pull it out. But when he tried to move around the tissue to get a better look, he couldn't get it dislodged. And so he pulled the probe out and he told Paul he would need to come back in a couple of days when he could use a longer and more powerful probe. And so Paul looks at the doctor and he's like, well, what is it? What is this orange thing inside of my lungs? And the doctor said, honestly, I have no idea, but it's not supposed to be in there. A few days later, Paul went back in for this follow-up procedure and the doctor using this longer, more powerful probe was able to go down and actually dislodge this orange thing from inside of his lungs. And as soon as he pulled it free, there was a camera screen that was watching in real time what this probe was seeing. And so Paul and the doctor and the other doctors that were in there as well, all got to see for the first time what this thing was. And it was this kind of triangular, small orange thing that nobody had seen before. And so as it was getting pulled, up and out of Paul's body, everyone's just watching the camera, wondering what this thing is. And then finally, the pinchers came out of Paul's mouth, revealing what it was holding on to, and nobody could believe what they were looking at. What it was holding on to was a small plastic orange traffic cone from a child's play toy set. And as soon as Paul saw it, a memory came rushing back to him, and he told the doctors when he was seven years old, he swallowed, or so he thought, a cone that looked an awful lot like this one, except he hadn't swallowed it, he had inhaled it. And then somehow for 40 plus years, he'd had no symptoms related to it until now when he developed that cough. Paul would say when he had this revelation in front of the doctors, there was a moment of silence and then everybody just started cracking up laughing because none of the doctors had seen anything like it before and didn't really know how to react to it. And so Paul was allowed to keep his traffic cone and after he left, his cough went away and he went back to normal. 
From the time Gareth Williams was a young boy, his parents knew he was extremely gifted. When he was just 17 years old, he achieved a first-class honors mathematics degree from a university in his hometown of Wales. A couple of years after that, he had his PhD from the University of Manchester in England. And after that, he was accepted into a postgraduate course at one of the most prestigious universities in the world, Cambridge. But he wouldn't finish that degree because his incredible academic achievements had got the attention of Britain's intelligence agencies, and they began recruiting him. In 2001, when Gareth was 23, Britain's communication headquarters, commonly known as GCHQ, which is one of Britain's main intelligence agencies, offered him a job as a codebreaker. He eagerly accepted the job, dropped out of Cambridge, and then moved into a modest apartment in Cheltenham, which is the resort town about 88 miles away from London where GCHQ is located. And there he would live and work for the next 10 years. Despite being an intensely private and shy person, Gareth was a highly valued team player whose genius in mathematics and technology helped his group win a number of Britain's highest awards for international code breaking. In 2009, one of Britain's other main intelligence agencies, the famous Secret Intelligence Service, or MI6 for short, they were so impressed with Garrett that they offered him a job to come over and work for them. This was a very rare chance for Gareth to go operational and become a spy in the kind of Hollywood sense of the word. He would effectively become a real-life James Bond, and so he jumped at the chance. But shortly after taking the job and moving to London, he regretted his decision. He hated the intense competitiveness within MI6, the flashy cars and flashy lifestyles, and the pressure to go out and party with your co-workers every weekend. Gareth just wanted to do his job and then be left alone. At GCHQ, nobody cared he felt that way. But at MI6, this behavior made him an outsider. Before he left MI6, he took his annual two-week vacation. But when the vacation was over, he didn't come back to work at his office in London. And for some reason, MI6 never checked in on him to see where he was. It wasn't until his sister called police after not hearing from him that anybody looked into his disappearance. On August 23rd, a uniformed officer went to Gareth's apartment in London to do a welfare check. After knocking on the door and not getting an answer from Gareth, the officer got the key to the apartment from the landlord and went inside. He yelled out for Gareth. There was no sign of him on the first floor. He went upstairs to see if maybe Gareth was up there. He's yelling for him the whole way as he's going up. He gets to the second floor. There's nobody up there, but there's a closed door. And what he finds on the other side of that closed door would make international headlines for weeks. When he opened the door, he walked into a bathroom and there was nothing unusual about the bathroom, except in the bathtub, there was this big red duffel bag. And inside of that duffel bag was the badly decomposed body of Gareth Williams. The zipper of the bag was padlocked shut on the outside and the key to this padlock was underneath Gareth's body inside of the bag. There were no fingerprints on the rim or inside the bathtub. There were also no fingerprints on the bag itself or on the two zippers or on the padlock or on the keys. Gareth's iPhone had been found nearby sitting on a table and it had been factory reset. And later investigators would determine it had been reset on August 15th, which was the last day Gareth was seen on CCTV footage. And it was also the day that they believe he died. According to the coroner, Gareth's body had no injuries on it. There was no sign of a struggle. And his toxicology report showed that he had no drugs or alcohol in his system. The thermostat inside of Gareth's apartment was jacked way up. So it was very hot inside of his apartment, despite the fact it was summer and it was the height of the summer in August. But regardless, the excessive heat in his apartment sped up the decomposition process and made it impossible to precisely determine a cause of death. Despite a lengthy investigation by police, there was never a conclusive determination as to what exactly happened to Gareth. 
although there are many theories. Some say the Russian mafia killed him because right before he died, he had been focusing on money laundering in Britain that was tied to the Russian mafia, which would have made him a target. Another theory is MI6 had something to do with Gareth's death, which is why they were not so eager to go looking for him when he didn't come back from his vacation. In fact, one former MI6 agent has come out and said he believes there was a cover-up. He was interviewed by CNN and said that it looked like MI6 had gone into Gareth's apartment ahead of the police and wiped it all down, removing fingerprints and DNA evidence. The last prominent theory is that Gareth did this to himself. It was discovered that he made occasional online visits to bondage sites, and at least one time he'd had to yell out to his landlord to help get him out of his bed because he had tied his wrist to the bed frame and couldn't get himself undone. But when two experts who were a part of the investigation attempted to put themselves inside of a similar sized duffel bag and lock it with the padlock on the outside, they couldn't do it despite trying over 400 times. And even if Gareth could have somehow physically got himself inside of this bag and locked it from the outside, how could he have done that without leaving fingerprints all over the bag, all over the lock, the zippers, all over the tub? Because when he was found, he didn't have gloves on. Ultimately, despite the red flags, Gareth's death was determined to be probably an accident and was closed three years after his death. On the afternoon of April 10th, 2018, 16-year-old Kyle Plush had just finished classes at Seven Hills High School in Cincinnati, Ohio. He walked out the school's doors and began walking straight across towards the sophomore parking lot where his car, a minivan, was located. Although Kyle had suffered from a spinal cord injury at a young age, he had made a remarkable recovery. He not only walked after his injury, he ran. He went downhill skiing, he biked, he swam, he played soccer. But of all the sports he enjoyed playing, tennis was his favorite. He had joined the high school tennis team and had become one of their best and most popular players. That afternoon, he had a match scheduled, so he needed to get into his minivan and get out his tennis racket and his tennis shoes. And so he made it to the vehicle a little bit after 3 p.m. He slid open the door, he threw his backpack inside, and then he climbed towards the third row back seat of the van where his sneakers were sitting on the bench seat. And so he got to the third row, he turned around and sat down facing the front of the minivan. He took off his school shoes, put on his tennis shoes, and then he got up onto his knees and turned around so he's facing the back of the van. His knees are on the third row seat. And he began reaching down into the trunk to reach for his bag that contained his tennis racket. And as he was reaching, the third row itself, what he was kneeling on, flipped backwards, dumping him headfirst into the trunk, except all of Kyle's body did not just go tumbling into the trunk space. Instead, his upper half made it about halfway down. He tumbled with the seat. And then he got stuck upside down when the top of that third row seat caught his chest and pressed it up against the back hatch of the van. And so Kyle's upside down, his hands are free in the trunk space, but they're too close to the ground where he can't really press himself out of this position he's in. And this third row seat that's come loose and trapped him like this, it's not locked in position. And so if he goes up at all, the seat goes with him. If he comes down at all, the seat comes with him. And so even trying to push himself back out again, he wouldn't be able to clear the seat because it would just come with him and then come back down again. And so he probably looked for places to pull himself down, hoping that might be a way to clear the obstruction, but there was nothing to grab onto and his lower half would not have been able to slip through that gap 
even if the seat was stationary, because no person is supposed to get through that tiny little gap. There was also no inside handle on the back hatch that Kyle could have grabbed and potentially opened the back door. And so he was entirely reliant on somebody showing up and opening the trunk to get him out. But the scariest part of this situation was that that loose third row that came forward and trapped Kyle against the back of the van, it weighed nearly 100 pounds and it was driving against his chest. And so he would have had to fight with every breath he took in, pushing up that 100 pounds just to get a marginal breath. But worse than that, if Kyle didn't constantly put air into his chest and keep it full and inflated and strong, that seat would literally crush his chest and kill him. Kyle knew he had to find a way to signal someone that he was in this car. He couldn't reach his phone because it was up in his pants pocket and that meant getting up around the obstruction and he couldn't do that but he had a smartphone and he knew he could use voice assisted calling. And so at 3.14 PM, he used his iPhone's voice assistant, Siri, to call 911. As soon as the dispatcher picked up, Kyle was frantic and he was yelling, help, 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 I'm trapped in a minivan in the Seven Hills parking lot, someone needs to get me out. But the dispatcher couldn't really understand what Kyle was saying, because you gotta remember, Kyle is yelling from in the trunk space through this collapsed seat up to his phone in his pocket. And the dispatcher was just having a hard time understanding what he was saying. Although if you listen to the audio, it's plainly clear that Kyle is in distress. You can hear that he's yelling and you can hear him banging, which apparently is him banging on the inside of the car. And so they kept asking Kyle, where did you say you are? What's going on? But Kyle, he can't hear his phone. So Kyle just kept frantically repeating his situation, saying his name, where he was located, what was happening to him, in hopes that maybe somebody on the other end of the line would understand what was going on and would come save him. Towards the end of the call, Kyle tells the dispatcher that he thinks he's going to die here. And when the call does cut out, the dispatcher tries calling Kyle back, but it goes to voicemail and his voicemail only indicated his name was Kyle. It didn't give a last name or anything about him. Not knowing if this was real or a hoax, the dispatcher wrongly labeled this call as unknown trouble when they broadcast it to police. And the dispatcher did not communicate that Kyle was obviously in distress. He was screaming and banging on something throughout the call and even referenced that he thought he was going to die. Had the dispatcher given Kyle's call a higher priority, fire and rescue would have been alerted and they could have used their advanced mapping technologies to pinpoint where Kyle's cell phone was and they could have found him that way. Instead, local police were sent to the Seven Hills High School area to go look around the different parking lots that this caller could have been in. But there was nearly a dozen of these parking lots associated with the high school making it a huge search area. And again, these police officers were not even aware what they were looking for. They were looking for unknown trouble associated with some caller somewhere around this huge high school. And so the police show up and begin kind of meandering through all these parking lots, staying in their vehicle, just kind of looking around and they don't see any problems. Although in reality, they were right near Kyle the entire time. At 3.35 PM, with the police still patrolling the parking lots around the high school, Kyle used Siri to call 911 again and a different dispatcher answered. Now, at this point, it's been 21 minutes since Kyle's first 911 call. And so the weight of that third row is becoming unbearable. His voice is very weak. It's very faint. You can tell he has labored breathing and every word is punctuated with a long silence as he tries to get out anything he can to try to help himself. And one of the things he says to the dispatcher as soon as they answer is, if I die, I need you to tell my mother that I love her. And there's a silence. And Kyle asked them, can you hear me? 
and there's still a silence. And he says, this is not a joke. I'm trapped in my gold minivan in the Seven Hills sophomore parking lot. If you don't get here soon, I'm going to die. There's another silence. And then Kyle says, hey Siri. And then there's silence. And he says, hey Siri again, and again, and again. And then it goes silent. The second dispatcher had heard Kyle on this call, but for some reason did not relay to the patrolling officers in the area Kyle's dire situation or his exact position that he was in this gold Honda Odyssey in the sophomore parking lot. For some reason, that was not communicated to those officers. And so two minutes after the second 911 call ended, those two officers left thinking, there's nobody here, there's no trouble. And that was it, Kyle was left all alone. Six hours later, Kyle's father went out looking for him after he didn't come home from his tennis match. And he found his son's minivan parked in the sophomore parking lot at the high school. And when he went up to it, it was too late. His son was still trapped upside down in the back in the trunk, and he had died after the third row had finally crushed his chest, causing him to asphyxiate. Kyle's family is in the middle of a wrongful death lawsuit filed against the city and several employees, and so the legal outcomes of this case are still pending. So that's going to do it, guys. If you found the secret in today's episode, let us know in the comments what it is and where you found it, so give us the timestamp. And if you're the first to do that, we'll pin you at the top of the comments section. If you enjoyed today's video and you haven't done this already, the next time you get to a four-way intersection at the same time as the like button, politely tell them to go on and as soon as they begin to move, immediately T-bone them. Also, please subscribe to our channel and turn on all notifications so you don't miss our weekly three or four video uploads. If you want to get in touch with me, you can direct message me on Instagram or on Twitter. My username for both platforms is the same. It's johnballin416. I also have a ton of content over on TikTok where my username is MrBallin. I also have a second YouTube channel called Mr. Ball and Shorts, where I post short videos. If you have a story suggestion, please submit it to our subreddit just called Mr. Ballin. It's linked in the description below. So whether I see you on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Reddit, YouTube, or some combination, just know that I really appreciate your support. And until next time, that's going to do it. See ya.